There is something you're not telling me. Uh, what? No, that's not true. You're a very bad liar, B minus. More like D plus on this. Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci Fi's and the Magicians. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Welcome to the Coffee Clash Crew, The Magicians, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives with episode 11, The 411. Very clever. It's episode 411, 411, and the title is 411. Written by Henry Alonso Myers and Christina Strain and directed by Mira Minon. Mira did the episode 23 last year and also Escape from the Happy Place this year. IMDb is giving this an 8.4, and the critics are saying the 411 starts connecting dots between the storylines. There's a lot of exposition trying to set up pillars for what will ultimately tie the season together. It succeeds, but still feels like we haven't made progress in our major plot points. And I'm going to have to disagree on that one because I feel we made more progress in this episode than we have for quite some time this season. I was really excited to see some questions finally getting answered. And this felt like a return to form for me. Plus, there was a lot of great callbacks to book canon that we've been waiting on for some time, us readers. Yes, it does start connecting dots between the storylines. And we have been saying that The Magicians is really good at doing that towards the end of the season, which is exactly what they're doing. There was a lot of exposition, but they did it in such a different and unique way as being narrated by a book from an amazing actor, which we'll get into, in a way that was funny, entertaining, and yes, I did have to watch it three or four times, and a lot of our clatchers said that too, but that's because there was so much information there. And all of our hero storylines, they were all interesting, and they did what they do all the time, and they do it well. They answered some questions and opened some new questions. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I still feel this is kind of late in the game to start wrapping these things up. You know, I don't think it excuses the feelings that I had the last couple of episodes because I'm worried they still have a lot of heavy lifting to do in the final two episodes. And that's normally how it goes. The episode 13 finale runs at a dash. I mean, everything happens really, really quickly and we get a ton of information dropped on us. But I do think that this episode, just on its own, did a fantastic job of telling that story without it feeling like an overload. My one minor gripe is that Alice sort of wound up back on the outside again instead of being more kind of a part of the library plotline and figuring that out. But I know that that had to be done because she needed to have this out with Quentin in a way. I'm just not sure where this leaves them by the end of the episode, which I know we'll talk about. I do think that they continue to do an excellent job with the character developments. Yeah, we're still learning about Q. Of all the magicians, you would think that's probably someone we know the most of as compared to everyone else. Well, yeah, and they made a great effort. They've talked about that a lot this season in order to incorporate other characters. You know, the side effect, they're not just side characters. They have their own storylines. And it doesn't have to be all about Quentin, who is really the atypical protagonist. But as an effect of that, we haven't gotten a lot of Quentin this season. And perhaps it's tough. He's going through some difficult emotional things right now that are hard to watch. I'm getting a little angry with him at times, even though I completely understand, completely relate to everything that's taken place between the two of them. You know, I'm an, I'm an Alice supporter, so... <laughs> With that being said, I feel like looking back on this season so far, 
the episodes that did involve Quentin heavily, his storylines were really interesting. Just off the top of my head, we have the card game that he played. That was awesome. Like the Ocean's Eleven type mm-hmm. scene. This scene today. And there's a handful of others. Well, I also like what they did with Katie's storyline this time because that's been feeling a little bit forced to me with how it's tying in with the Hedge Witches. I loved putting her with Zelda and forcing her to come face to face with this really ridiculous scenario. You know, this is what happened to Penny having to go into the poison room and now she has to do that. It makes a lot of sense to me. And now (laughs) I know we've gone through about a million people as the answer to who's on the other side of that door. With a sinking feeling in my chest, it's feeling more and more like maybe we have an answer. You know, we had a clatcher say that they believed it was Zelda. Did we read that on the air? I think so. And I had discussed that too. But if I'm going to go for one of the two of them here, it is awful, but also fodder for storytelling that she's fighting so hard against the library would wind up dying and becoming part of the library. But also, in a way, she would get to be back with Penny Yeah, who greets her? Her Penny. Wow. I mean, man, right? I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens with them being locked in the poison room next episode. Yeah, I wonder, though, if she dies, there's so much storyline that they were building, so much possibility with her being a head hedge witch. But that that didn't really feel like something I had anticipated or maybe even wanted to see. And there's a lot they still could have done with it, so I might have come to feel different later, but maybe that would make sense if it was never going to develop much further. But we're getting ahead of ourselves again. Let's slow down. And talk new faces and places for the episode. First and foremost, we met The Binder, played by Matt Frewer. Now, you might recognize him from everything on TV (laughs) forever, but I picked out some things that I thought were cool. First, I didn't know that he's been in a TV series called Olympus, where he plays both Daedalus and Prometheus. And I thought that was just so apropos considering everything we've been talking about. Plus another show called The Librarians. And while we're talking about similarities, that show we spoke about a few episodes ago on Netflix, the new one, The Order, he is the Quentin-type character's father, Mm. grandfather. Crazy, right? No, maybe most memorable from my childhood, he was in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, where he played Big Russ Thompson. But particularly iconic, in The Stand, he was Trash Can Man. And wow, did he blow me away as that Mm. character. Somebody who was completely memorable from the books. And as you're reading the Stephen King novel, you're thinking, they got to land this. They got to get the right person to play Trash Can Man. And they sure did. Yeah. And that's one of your favorite films. Absolutely. And we'll sing his praises here. But this is a big part of the reason the exposition did not bother us when he gives the story about the Binder's origins, because... Matt Furrer just did such a wonderful job of captivating us on screen. We also briefly met the character Ismani, a naiad who knows about the 13th, King of Fillory, that is. That character looked badass, huh? I liked that visually a lot. When I talk about creatures and Fillory and sort of when it lives up to the hype, this one did for me. It's so funny, though, because I would picture a water being being more beautiful. As opposed to scary. Naiads have been portrayed both ways throughout the stories. And in fact, we're going to talk about them later on in our character review section. Coming back around to the 13th King of Fillory, known as Thirsty Roderick, our boy was up to some stuff that we don't fully understand yet, but building this massive water reserve. 
under Castle Whitespire. Now, does that mean it's actually in Castle Blackspire? Do they have to go back mm, I wonder. to that area to access it? And this does not seem Maybe not to that far under. be the same thing as the Wellspring. Is the Wellspring like a small offshoot? Yeah, that was out in the woods. And they've, I remember. he's just like dammed up this massive amount yeah. sitting under the castle. Crazy stuff. But does that mean the 13th King of Fillory is actually Everett? Or is he taking advantage of knowing that that was there? No, I think he's taking advantage of because this happened in the past. And true, they don't have all of the records about him. Strangely enough, they couldn't find them. And that would be typical of the library to Hmm. confiscate and hide books they don't want others to know about. I mean, I guess we don't really know enough about his background yet. He is an intrigue for us this season. And for New Magic, we had heard about the incorporate bond before. In fact, I believe season one, when we first met Mayakovsky. But it's explained better here that it's like a fourth dimension weight that can pin a person down. This was how he was kept at Breakbill South all that time. We also see the time swap spell that allows you to swap your present consciousness with one from another time. Yeah, that was cool. I didn't see that coming. I liked the interaction it created between Alice and Quentin. I do think we've done a little much of the alternate personas in any way you could possibly picture but it was different enough here that i appreciated the tension that was occurring i see what you're saying about alternate personas this wasn't really that i think you're more thinking about the end of this episode thinking the knowledge of julia might become the sister oh no that's going to be another more egregious one but even here there are two different representations of the self this time it's however many years a couple years ago (laughs) alice and quentin versus the present day Alice and Quentin, and certainly changed a lot. What I liked about it is it's a different spin on what we know and love, time travel. You're actually swapping. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And not swapping bodies, swapping the mental. You know, I think what I do like about this is that old saying, if I knew then what I know now, well, this is truly, well, I'll go back to then with what I know now. Don't you think, though, there's some part of him that wishes he could just be that Quentin who didn't know all of this stuff? Look how badly he's no happier It was so striking to see, not just that they looked younger, him and Alice both looked different because they were happy for once. (laughs) And past Alice does point that out. You're in so much more pain. Mm -hmm. It's not better though, because inevitably that's going to change. So you're ignorant for that little bit of time. I don't call it ignorant. I think past Alice was right. I mean like ignorant to the pain you're about to receive. Yeah, but I still, I think she was right what she told him. Can he forget everything they've been through? Can he just forgive her? Absolutely not. But maybe sometimes Quentin's mind gets in his own way of being able to be happy. There's also a part of him that doesn't need to think things to death. You know, maybe he should just go with it a little more. Isn't that exactly what Hyman is telling Penny about being with Julia? You have this opportunity finally to be happy. Just get together with her, man. We're going to jump into our plot. We have four different locations or stories to talk about this time. Since we're getting into it, we will start off with Break Bill South. This starts off as a group storyline where Margot is back on Earth, describing her journey through the desert to first Q, then Julia, then Penny, and reveling in the names she gave to the ice axes, Sorrow and Sorrow. Well, this was a great way to start the episode off after such a deep episode last week. What I really enjoyed about it is that's kind of how I feel with our podcast and the shows we're watching. When I go to work, I'm asked what I felt about that episode. Talking to my parents, I'm asked what I thought about that episode. Other friends, 
and I feel like I'm repeating myself. <laughs> and I do often say, just listen to the podcast. I don't want to repeat everything. But in some way, you still love telling the story. You can tell Margo is still loving the attention. Yeah. And I know that you probably didn't get the joke, but this was from the books. Elliot asks Janet what she's named them. And she introduces the first one as Sorrow and he guesses at the other one. She's like, no, that one's Sorrow too. <laughs> so she's excited about this victory, but Q points out the monster is too powerful to be held in one of her desert bottles. They need another answer. Alice suggests putting an incorporate bond on it, and they seek help from Fogg with the spell, but they learn that Mayakovsky is the only one who can give them the information. He's an expert on this magic and luckily human again since magic has returned to the world. And of course, Dean Fogg says what we've been saying about him. I love him so much, but he just lets them all do everything without helping them. Mm -hmm. And he legit just tells them now, this is how I've stayed alive so long. And Katie, in fact, will call him a coward later on. Even here, Margot and Penny are not interested in returning and they let Alice and Q go alone to break Bill South. Yeah, Penny goes for a second and goes, I'm out. Too cold. <laughs> they find Mayakovsky passed out drunk on the floor. Not unusual. What is unusual is he doesn't seem to recognize them at all. This is when they find out he used the time swap spell, but accidentally inverted two numbers and took his consciousness from a future where he has dementia. So Q will have to talk to him in the past. He was trying to go back to the past, maybe to fix it, Mayakovsky? I don't know what his intention was. And it's sort of sad that you can see they want to warn him. Q wants to say something when he's in the past, but Alice has warned him, you can't change anything. The same rules of time travel we usually see. So he should not tell him, listen, when you go to try this spell, check your numbers carefully. You don't want to wind up this way forever. I found it peculiar that Mayakovsky would mess up the numbers, but maybe he was just so drunk. Could be. Happens a lot. So now that he's in the future where his body has dementia, that means he has dementia. His, where his brain, yeah. Because of just like what we were saying, it's the body stays. So now it's that conscience stuck in that brain that has dementia. That sucks. After Alice warns Q to be careful and that she will have to wipe his memory after, he goes back and arrives at the moment where he and Alice were about to consummate their relationship. After they had come back from being in Fox form, he finds a way to slip out of the room, but she is suspicious and hurt. Then we see the magic runs out on present Alice, leaving past Q wondering why he's standing there on the table. Present Alice thinks fast and tells him the rope lying around must be a test for Mayakovsky and they need to tie it all into knots. Very clever. Keep him busy so she doesn't have to explain anything, especially knowing that her memory wipe won't work because they're out of magic. Yeah, now that's going to create some questions for me later. Did she get some of that done? None of it done? How much will Q remember? He certainly remembers some from his journey. And we're really lucky that he's gullible and just accepted that. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Mayakovsky's a weirdo. So present Q goes and finds him and tells him he needs information about incorporate bonds. Mayakovsky believes that B- should focus on having Fox sex with the woman who is better and smarter than him, but finally tells him the problem with casting this is you need to know your discipline, and Q's test was inconclusive. When pushed more, and beginning to get drunk, Mayakovsky says he knows Q is hiding things, like the fact that he's from the future. He's also deduced that he must have finished the timeshare spell in the future. But Q doesn't need to worry, he won't remember any of this later because he's drunk. And he finally writes the basics of the bond and shares Q's discipline with him. Repair of small objects. How did he know that? Well, Mayakovsky was digging through his brain. He had something into his head, which looked very painful, by the way. And it looked like he was looking into that thing 
and reading him. And of course, he's reading it with magic. And that's how we learned about his discipline and the fact that that conscious is older than the body. We saw a part of these scenes, obviously not done in the same way, but in the books that was so striking. It taught us just how smart and talented Mayakovsky was, that he had developed all of these magical tools, spells that other people had no idea about. If you go back to another thing that was a little bit dropped, but he had all those batteries that were storing up magic. Well, it's funny you say that the battery was literally dropped from a roof. You remember one of them, yes, it's true. And this is also a part from the books where we learn about Q's discipline. It's a larger category called mending, an innate skill to repair objects, but it branches off into major mendings, the ability to repair objects on a larger scale, and minor mendings, those on a smaller scale. The latter is Quentin's discipline. So I know that people have been talking about what could Q do with this because we leave off on a real cliffhanger, these you know big, huge things he could accomplish. I'm not sure that this is what his skill is. Yeah. Now, certainly small things could still be very powerful, and I do think that's going to come back around in a big way for our storyline. For sure. It's the way he explained it, how he's fixing it. He's putting them together, and they're being reminded of what they used to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, that resonates with a lot of our magicians, but I think that's playing with us Mm because as far as the monster is concerned, I don't think he'll be able to mend any of those things. Yeah, that's like a huge being with incredible power. So objects (laughs) and minor. I I do think it will be important, but I just don't want to put the cart in front of the horse here. What I really enjoyed about learning his discipline is that it's kind of poetic. If you remember the episode when he went back home and we learned that growing up, he was always putting together model airplanes. So it's very apropos. Yeah, and it makes sense for Quentin, who has always wanted sort of a destiny that was bigger than what he had been given, power, ability that was bigger. You know, you're standing next to somebody like Alice, who has an incredible amount of power and this discipline of light bending, plus all the other stuff she knows about. And you can tell when he's explaining it to her. It's like, I I can prepare small objects. But... (laughs) She does a really good job of talking to him. Yeah, but this is you. You know, you need to accept who you are. And how did that feel? Didn't it feel good to be able to do that? I really liked that moment that they shared together. Again, we're jumping ahead, though. First, we have to mention past Alice overhears this conversation between Mayakovsky and Quentin. And she realizes what he's done. She pressures Q into telling her what's going on between them in the present saying she'll even put a memory charm on herself after she just needs to know. He winds up telling her she will get hurt, they both do. But this is where she said she's not scared of the future, only of losing what they have. Quote, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. When you go back, just remember that. Oh, that was so beautiful. To be honest with you, I forgot how close they were and how much they loved each other. Mm -hmm. It had been so long, I was even jaded. I'm hoping that this will make the present cue, once he's back, remember as well. Obviously, it won't fix everything, but I think it's a huge step forward to forgiving her, accepting her back into the fold, and perhaps growing that relationship again. And they can still be good for each other, no matter what format that relationship takes. Maybe it's not the right thing to just say, this is too hard, I don't want to deal with it because it hurts too much, which is exactly what he's doing right now. And we see this look on his face. I mean, Jason Ralph does a great job of acting it when present Q is transported back to mid-kiss, where past Alice was finally convinced to forget herself. In the moment, she started kissing past Quentin, and then they changed. 
Yeah. So even present Alice, which I think needed less convincing or remembering because mm-hmm. it was obvious she still loved him. But she's even reinforced of what they used to have. So there's the fact that the past Q did not get his memory wiped. But present Alice, this is going to get confusing, did a good job of keeping him at bay, keeping him busy, not even in the slightest making him realize he was in the future. The only challenge is, and I don't think we're going to see it, what happens when he's transported back? We're hoping that the past Alice, who's again super smart, will realize that it's the cue she knows back and will just play it off seamlessly. Give him another, well, she could in the past give him another wipe. So we'll have to see if anything comes of that. I have a feeling it doesn't. The storyline's just going to push forward. You don't think him remembering what she said to him will matter to how he feels about her? Oh, yes. For that, yes. Okay. Relationship-wise, for sure. But before we move on, we got to talk about, we got to finally see Mayakovsky again. How awesome was that? I mean, yes and no. (laughs) It was also sad. Even back then, he was miserable. Mm -hmm. I had kind of more than we even realized voluntarily put himself under this prison situation where he couldn't leave Brick Bell South and yet he was not happy there. And now we know what's in store for him in the future. It, it was all just very depressing. I felt bad for him. Absolutely. That was sad. But his conversation with Q was hilarious. Oh, he's always D minus. Now I call you D minus. You should be having sex with the... Fox sex. Uh, with the uh, <laughs> magician who's twice as skilled as you and, and way better looking. He's... I forgot how freaking miserably she hasn't hilarious figured he is. It out yet. <laughs> so welcome back. We hope to see you again, but I don't know. If they maintain that this is the consciousness that's going to stay with him, mm. I don't know how you go back to that character. But how could Fog just let that happen? Well, Fog didn't know that he did that. Still at this point, he doesn't know. No, I'm saying say he finds out, is there really nothing you can do to help him? I know well, I he's mean, not apt to get involved in <clears throat> There might be a spell we don't know that could reverse it. Who knows? If anyone would know, it'd be Mayakovsky, right? Because it's Mayakovsky's spell. Really, I know that changing the past changes a lot of things. He already knew so much when Quentin was talking to him. What would it be to just tell him, check, double check your numbers? That's all I can say. <laughs> I can't tell you anything else. Double check your numbers. Just double check your numbers. Maybe he left a piece of paper saying that. I mean, for fuck's sake. For fuck's sake. Yeah. Back to our next plot line, and arguably the biggest one of the episode. Still trying to solve the binder mystery, Julia thinks that if it's written in a real language, it's old and unknown. While trying to figure it out, Margot gets bit by the book, and when they reopen it, it's mostly blank with faint writing in Margot's own blood. Thus, they realize the trick to this thing. It's like a lot of magic. You have to give a blood offering in order to be able to read it, so she uses her period blood. And I knew she was doing it right when she said, I have plenty of that. Yep. I was like, oh boy. Then Penny, who apparently can read a bunch of different languages, reads the Latin aloud. And a person begins emerging, saying, as they stared, eyes full of wonder, the binder thought to himself, took you long enough. What a great reveal, though, huh? Coming out of the book. Mm-hmm. And they have a great video on how they film that. It's pretty cool. So you guys should check that out on Sci-Fi. Yeah, that he actually had to physically climb out of this latex <laughs> book. I just assumed that was all CG. Speaking in the third person, the binder reflects he knows Julia has many questions about reacquiring her divinity. He has answers, but they need to learn how he came to be first. Before he can tell them, though, they arrive at missing pages and he passes out. So funny. I love that. 
It was funny. It was kind of a weird break for this subplot sideline story to bring Hyman back. It was almost like a scary movie at first. Margot sees the shadow yeah. pass by. So, no, she actually sees him. I saw, when I watched it the second time. She didn't know who it was, though. No, she never met him. She didn't have that eye. Oh, that's true. She didn't yeah. know Hyman. Well, she goes upstairs to check it out and he knocks her out and shoves her in the closet. Of course, it's invisible to us while this is happening. But Julia and Penny find her and she reveals she can see this incorporeal being with her fairy eye. And he keeps pointing at Penny. So at first, I thought they were going somewhere else with that and not Hyman. Because between those two scenes was a scene that we'll get to with Dean Fogg showing the first years, the ones who have survived, how to use a spell to the get... The cloaking spell. Cloaked, right. So I was like, oh, so that's tying whomever knocked her out. Yeah. But it wasn't. I thought it, it was, was Dean Fogg himself. Oh, geez. Because later it looks like he stuck like that until we find out it was all a plan. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so I thought it was trouble. Dean Fogg like stumbling around <laughs> invisible. <laughs> that could have been funny. But no, Penny Astral projects and realizes it's time in Cooper. Now I understand, and I, I'm not sure I think you might have edited this out of the version we released to the podcast, but this last interview with Penny, he brought up Cooper. Yeah. And he was talking about how great those two characters were on screen together, which they are. It's fantastic, the back and forth that they have. But at the time, it sort of flashed in my brain like, well, we haven't seen Hyman in a long time. I wonder what, like, what made him think of that. And then I thought back to the first interview we had with him where he was talking about Sylvia and that plot line had sort of been done at that point in the season, <laughs> but it wound up coming back around later. Very crafty he Very is. Very tricky, tricky. By the way, thank you so much, Arjun, for coming on. If you guys haven't listened to that yet, it's the episode right before this one on our podcast. So check it out. It was really fun. He stayed online for a long time with us. And uh, I mean, he wants to come back on. He said so many nice things. I edited a lot of it out. He's just an awesome person. And a lot of our listeners who have already checked it out are giving a ton of love and saying how great it was to hear him again. I forgot to ask him which penny he liked better, 23 or 40. I really wanted to ask Well, in that. an indirect way, we kind of did. We talked about that a bunch and um, his feelings on playing both. And this is a major part of the arc of this scene we're talking about as Hyman is here because Penny Forty changed his life. Now, it's funny. We're hearkening back to, in a really creepy way. The Be the Penny episode. The Be the Penny. Hyman was just obsessed with this storyline, watching it play out like a soap opera. You know, mm -hmm. this is his favorite story. These are his characters. But when Penny Forty died, Hyman realized not only did he need to figure out what happens next with these characters, but he didn't want to just be a witness anymore. So he finally left Break Bills. And he witnessed the ritual, creepy, with Julia and Penny. <laughs> He knows that this brought him to a real revelation that we finally get a serious moment. He knows they both sacrificed their own joy to help others. And he thinks it's time for them to be happy. That's what he's here to tell Penny 23. Yeah, that was very unselfish of Hyman, especially knowing how he is. It was just a little strange. It almost felt like the writers reassuring us because as viewers, there has been a lot of controversy. You know, some people really wanting them to be together. Some people not sure how they feel. We kind of went back and forth. We were feeling good about it more recently, but it felt like them bringing in a fun-loving character to tell us the way Santa came in to remind <laughs> us Alice is a good person. Yeah. Hyman's coming in to say, no, you two really should be together. It was also, what I liked is we got to see the fairy eye. Now only for the second time this whole season, but still we got to see it come into play. Not to harp on the Arjun interviews, but in the first interview, 
We had said to him, we feel like Penny is a very giving person. And he goes, is he though? Selfless. Selfless, yeah. Yeah, that's what he And there, there you go. Hyman's saying it right there. You're always helping other people's stories. Time to work on your own. And we thought this was actually the through line. Yes, there are some small ways in which 23 and 40 are different because of the experiences they've had in life. But it's still the same person at the core. So there's going to be those kind of key character traits that will remain. And for us, that seems like his selfless actions or, as Arjun put it, actions in service of the group and I really liked that thought because we talked about in the interview how this Penny 23 is a lot less eager to jump in to where the action and the danger is he's more cautious but yet he still does want to help serve the group in what ways that he can we saw that with him psychically going into the monsters mind a huge risk to his personal well-being something I want to point out and probably a lot of Clatchers got it the first time but I actually had to really think it out I kept asking myself, but why did he tie up Margot? Why? And it was just him being stupid. He was trying to set up the room for a romance for Julia and Penny and three is a crowd. So his way of fixing it is just putting her in the closet. He's got the flower petals on the bed. Yeah. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. I love it. And in it. his head, I was like, what do I do? Knock her out. Well, back to the main story, though. It's then that the binder comes back, ready to tell his story that begins in the library. Here we go. He was once a librarian, studying the limits of power. His specialty was the magic inherent in gods. Great, a puppet show. The binder had a theory. When a being of great power, such as a god, is killed, their energy is lost. We've seen that. We saw that with Ember and Umber, if you recall. It was like gold dust coming Mm -hmm. out. But he believed it could be preserved by binding it to an object. Now, didn't we say, can't we like use that, like snort it or something? Mm-hmm. Remember? Weren't they even considering using it for something? It's hard to remember. Gosh, so I many wish details. I could recall. If you guys remember what happens, that was at the end of that season. Please let us know. But the answer is that yes, you can bind it. And then that object can in turn be bound to a magician of sufficient training and preparation, effectively turning them into a god. So you capture that godlike essence and can imbue it into this other person to turn them into a god. Yeah, but yet they weren't real gods. So this whole time we were talking to Bacchus, Heka, Iris, and Angus, they weren't real gods. They were playing one on TV, as opposed to Persephone, who is a legit god god. No, okay, so they were real gods. I guess. But the differentiation... As it was stolen. Well, imagine even that they hadn't stolen it, that they were gods like Ember and Umber. You have these new, younger group of gods, mm-hmm. and then you have the old gods who do seem to be somewhat different, and we don't know if that's a scope of power thing or what it is, but what they stole from was younger, newer gods, making them... I know, effectively a god, but they weren't born a god. And effectively a young god too if there is a line there in the sand which i think there's going to be but if you're a god created from an older god so you're a younger god but you're created from an older god you're a legit god rather than taking a fourth of a god and imbuing it into yourself well the fourth thing is a factor as well you know i guess theoretically that would make them less powerful because they only have a fourth of the magic but I am assuming still a fourth of a god's magic is Is a hell of a lot. And maybe this is why we made them less huge deal gods from the Pantheon. Mm -hmm. Also, 
we have to keep in mind this sister is super powerful way more powerful than the monster well exactly she's gonna be trouble yeah so who knows how much magic that equates to that they had but take a step back they're librarians that's crazy it's giving this a giant bump further into we were hopeful more people other than zelda maybe even the majority of the library was like zelda they believed they were doing something good. Yes, they had gone astray, and now they were doing very bad things. But inherently, they weren't bad people. Their intentions were to try to protect others. First, we learn about Everett. We learn about these other guys that were librarians. It's it's a lot of bad news. Is the institution mostly bad? I still don't really know. It definitely throws a lot of shade on it, though. Well, here's the issue we haven't talked about that the binder is telling us. If they just went out and killed a god, the old gods would take away magic the way we saw them do when Q killed Ember. Yeah, that's so funny. So the gods won't be mad if you just, you know, torture them and split them up and steal them. But if you kill them... No, well, they didn't... So they didn't know about this. We're going to get to that in a minute. Okay. That's the way they were able to get away with this. When they were first considering the idea... They knew if they went out and killed somebody Ember style, the old gods, they don't pay attention for much, but they will wake up and come running if you're killing one of them. It's no good. But then they made a mistake, one that allowed all of this to happen. They created something they didn't mean to. I don't know how this happened. Two siblings that were born with the power of many gods and also created with one unique quality that made them essential to the librarian's experiment, they could not die. Now, how did the gods do this? We don't know. It was a really bad mistake. We found that out back when Calypso and Prometheus were telling us about the castle at the end of the world that they had to shove this into because yeah. these creatures were a mistake. It wasn't meant to happen, but essentially they had you know, double, triple, however much more power, plus they couldn't die. This meant no matter what they did to them, it wouldn't trigger a retaliation. The gods wouldn't know because they hadn't killed them. Thus, the experiment. The older, more dominant sister was captured. The one left behind would then be confused and afraid like a child, would have trouble even remembering. And we see our monster is very much like that. Did you notice that it looked like a yin and yang? With the two babies? The embryos. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. We're getting sort of what they call a puppet show. Yeah. Playing out while the binder's talking. Storytelling. It's another way of storytelling. I thought that was so clever with a book telling you something. They. Just... I have always loved that. Like in Harry Potter where yeah. they're talking about the three brothers that and you go into... Cool. <laughs> then the older sister was split, split into, into four, four parts. parts. Each part bound in a stone. Each stone... Bound in the librarian. Bacchus, Iris, Hecca, Angus. Those ball sacks. When they were finished, the binder came to regret what he had done. Now, the binder was another librarian performing mm -hmm. this experiment. Why would you not give yourself one? You probably can't bind to yourself. Why wouldn't he have one of them do it? Because it was his skill. Only he could do it. I don't think it's something easy enough that you can just learn in class. That's what I mean. Oh, I don't know. Surely don't think it's easy. But these five must have been fairly intimately working on this for a while. These other yeah. four librarians that become gods 
it does say that in order for the stone to even be bound to them, it has to be a magician of sufficient skill and understanding. It couldn't just be you pick out any old librarian and now they can become a god. We have yet to find out, but the more this story tells us, the more we are learning that librarians are already master level magicians. Yeah, and these ones were purebloods, these four. (laughs) And they formed the Death Eaters. Oh, yeah, that's what happened. So the binder now regretting what he'd done, the thing is these new gods he'd built were afraid of him. He alone held the secret that could make them human again. Here is the problem. He made you a god. He could reverse it. So they cursed him by turning him into a book. In that form, he became something they could control and hide from the rest of the order. See, there it is. So they stashed it away in the mirror world, hoping nobody else would A, figure out how to do it, or B, the secret that could undo their godhood. But wouldn't it have been written in their books so other librarians would have known this was going to happen? That's a good question. I'm kind of figuring that if they went through all of these lengths, they, they would change the books yeah, as well. Or hid them it's in the poison room. So it was only by chance that this young librarian read the book and was convinced to hide it in the mirror world where hopefully nobody would find it. Do you think it's going to be important who the librarian was that found it and hid it? I don't know. Or is that just an easy explanation that that was Everett and that's how he knew I really don't know. to go on this hunt? Well, that is until word reached Julia and her quest. He can bring her godhood or humanity, whichever she chooses. Either road would be painful. And he knows she's going to need time to consider. But in the meantime, he tells her he needs a favor in return. Afterwards, she must burn his book because he does not want to be used again. That was a sad part, huh? So either one will be painful. Yeah, as you can't imagine, this is going to be an easy process, right? And she already is sort of weighing it out later. If she becomes a god, could she be good or would she wind up engaged in all this nonsense she's hearing about these old gods are doing. Also, for her to become a god, we have to remember what the binder knows. The only way the binder knows how to create gods is the way we've seen. So in order for her to become a god, I think it entails the sister. And he's going to have to bind that sister into her. I don't think he has like a new way that's that's easier to make her become a god. Or is it the fact that she's already godlike? I think that's what it is. It's just... It would be, I guess, removing the humanity portion now at this point because oh, I see. she's sort of a hybrid. Yep. Ugh. So he's going to remove one part, whatever part she chooses, and she'll remain fully now. I'd say F that. Just stay a hybrid? Yeah. I'll figure it out. <laughs> Our Lady Underground. No, I don't like your tactics, come man. Come here. Talk to me. What's up? What, what's going on with me? Where did she go, by the way? Underground. With Hades? <laughs> The old gods, the, man, they don't like to Is this the time of year when Persephone is in the underworld Maybe. with Hades? I think this is her quest, and she's got to let her ride it out. Oh, I don't like that. That's something the gods would say. Well, Penny is doing a good job, really, initially putting his feelings aside and trying to help her think about what would be the pros and cons, what should she do. And she's sort of laughing at him, saying, of course I want to be human, I want to be happy. And she kisses him. But they're interrupted when the monster reappears with the news his sister is dying. It's rude to interrupt them. He, he has his shirt of the day on. <laughs> this time it says, sorry for what I said when I was hangry. So monster. Oh, yeah. He also tells them he found her a body, but it's not strong enough. He needs one more durable. That's when he grabs Julia and leaves before Penny can react. Now, I have to say, and I'm not tooting my own horn because it was you who said this, so 
Good job on this. I think it was last episode when we were discussing Elliot needing a body. Whenever he took the girl from the bar and yeah. I said, and I don't I said think that's going to be, be permanent. And yeah. And you said he's going to need a stronger body. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be Julia. If it's going to house a being like his sister. So congrats to you. Yeah. I mean, I don't love being right about that one because damn, now that's going to be Julia's fate. But the way they are describing these siblings, once the sister is back, he's going to be very different too. Elliot? The monster. He'll have all of his memory back. It was only with her gone that he became this very... For sure. But also, I think, well, what I was going to say is kind of going into spoiler territory. So I'll I'll hold back. I'll hold back on that. Well, I would like to see what that presents. We've talked for a long time about not thinking that the monster is all bad. We did find out in these scenes that that's true. He was part of a hole that got split up and it created him to be this thing that he wasn't initially this childlike creature with a lot of want we don't know what they were initially like the siblings other than the fact that they were super powerful and couldn't die they could be good for all we know yeah just threatening to the other gods so if they're together now and super powerful maybe they could help us yeah i don't foresee that it's not usually the way gods work but um i think they're gonna be pissed it's gonna be interesting they're gonna be pissed not at us. The library. Oh, yeah. They're going to probably be pissed at a lot of things, but these group of magicians have actually been helping them, our crew. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. But Monster Elliot doesn't seem to have much thanks at this point. In I don't this think he will. form, no. Okay. But that's what I mean. I think one way or another, he's going to be completely different once that happens. The question is, what were they like beforehand? So we're going to talk a little again in our character review coming up about twins in mythology what we might be able to expect. Let's move over to the library, where Zelda wants to steal Everett's book from the poison room to get ahead of him. But protocol dictates librarians have to enter in pairs for safety. Fog can't go because they're watching him closely, so Katie reluctantly agrees. Once there, they initiate the plan. Katie calls Fog on a banana phone. Banana phone. It's not really a phone. Funny though, the GPS coordinate numbers were off. And then in class, we see Fogg shows the surviving first-year students the cloaking spell we discussed. Fogg didn't, like, he picked it up without a hitch, like it was normal. Well, he did sort of look at it at first, but it sounds like this was all basically thought out ahead of time, that he was going to receive notification and then have to do something to create a distraction. And it works. We think at first he gets stuck invisible, but the plan is the library is now required to be alerted. And while speaking with Everett, Zelda is able to take the opportunity of the distraction to remove the key from his ring for the poison room. He is kind of on alert. He tells her he's been worried about her lately, that she's acting strange. But I think, at least temporarily, she puts him at ease. Now, who knows who has locked them in there if this is on purpose, if he does know something is up. Well, that's my question. I was going to wait till then, but I have two possibilities in my head. Everett, mm-hmm. which is really bad, right? Yeah. If Everett knows what's going on, they've lost the upper hand. And he wants them dead. And he's doing it on purpose to kill them. Keep his secret safe. The other thing is, who's been locked in there? Well, yeah, we spoke about that a while ago. Christopher Plover, could he do that from the inside? No, it was unlocked for them to leave. So he let them walk in, snuck behind them when they were walking past, walked out, locked them in. Oh, and left. Yeah, bounced. You think he could get by them? Oh, for sure. It's a big enough room. Hmm. He just waited for them to walk by looking through books. Oh, I don't even want to see what he's looking like right now, if that's true. A little banged up. 
maybe Pro- probably bad it'd be awesome if he was in black and white like the room is oh that would so be when cool. we see him out in color it's just him black and white that'd be awesome. that would be cool and we get another gross scene before they go into the room zelda has to give katie their protection a potion made of live insects that have to be swallowed whole so they'll eat any poison you take into your bloodstream I'm, i am like a huge bug person and you can't chew. Grossing me. How does that even work? So you work? would feel it going down. Are they you just like it. flying back up your throat? Yep. <laughs> it's a cool system though. She explains it only lasts an hour, but it starts to change taste as they fade. So you're alerted to that. First to chocolate and then to mint, which is when you know you're really in trouble. They search and Katie finds the book on Everett Row. Zelda speed reads it until she gets the answer. I want that power. Yeah, we've talked about that before because I'm a pretty fast reader, but I've heard that people who actually do speed reading, it's almost like you're not really getting the experience, no, the full experience of the book. But Although I as mean, a librarian. That's legit speed reading though. That's yeah. like, and makes flash sense. reads like that. They would need to do that. Well, Zelda learns Everett's been lying to all of them, hoarding magic to become a god. And if the book is correct, he succeeds. That's when they head back, hoping that they can slip back in through the shift change, but they find that the door has been locked, and Katie's potion is now starting to taste like mint. How about the way Zelda reacts to it? Like, it wasn't, oh, we're locked in! She's really good locked us in. under pressure. <laughs> so what do you think comes of them? I, I'm really not sure. Like I said before, from a writing standpoint, even though it's tragic, I could see Katie dying making a lot of sense to the future of the storyline and bringing us back to Penny 40, the underworld. There is a lot of unfinished business, and particularly with Zelda, I think she has to make it out of there. Well, yeah, because their knowledge would die with them. Yeah. And the crew wouldn't know. To uncover this Everett situation. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. Going, <laughs> Sorry, but going back to what you were saying... Where Penny Forty is working right now. Secrets taken to the grave. The secret of Everett. Yeah, I, th- I mean, it all makes sense that one of them is going to die here. But what if his job is not to actually take them into the underworld? When he opens that door, what if it's actually the door to get out? And it just looked like, you know what I'm saying? I don't think, yeah, and they take your secrets, but they don't take your soul. But I don't think you can get there at all without dying. Yeah, I guess you're right. I'm just trying to like make it work in my yeah, favor. Yeah, I don't... Uh, man, I really don't know. And then... But they have the secret to take to the grave right now. Well, something to ponder. I wonder... I haven't read our Clatcher's messages. Maybe they have some ideas. Yeah, and we still have to talk about Fillory. And further. Where first, another really random sidebar. Josh has a vision that he's in the middle of a commercial for his cooking show. Eating out with Josh Hoberman. Action! Any baker worth their gluten knows a biscuit is only as good as its flour. Add a drizzle of lavender-infused honey, and trust me, you'd eat this right off the floor. That's such a Josh-type scene. I love it. Uh, Tick tells the group that the winds of fate have come unseasonably early this year. So is that his fate? Seems like. He's got the personality and the skills to do it. And I, come on, that title. Uh, Yeah, it's It's a double entendre, and it's great. It's weird things keep happening in Fillory, though. And they acknowledge that, along with the other signs, the Lorian plant silencing the animals, too many questing creatures, Fenn thinks this all points to Fillory's ecosystem is in trouble. In an attempt to get answers, Tick remembers that not long ago they imprisoned a naiad for killing farmers who were stealing her water, as well as part of her soul, and they go to speak with her. 
is Moni, who says she was actually trying to give them a warning. The waters are moving, and it's the fault of the 13th. He tried to capture them and dam them in. This scene I had to watch a few times. It's just, I kept getting lost. Yeah. It's one It's the, one of those things, again, where there's so many, this thing to get to that thing to make sense of the other thing, and how does it all tie in? The gods creating that power, but then Everett also needing the waters to try to become his own god. It's... I know it's going to make sense eventually, but I feel really scattered. Like I can't tie everything in yet. And now we got this 13th king. Unfortunately, all mention of him has been magically erased from the archives. Or taken from a librarian. Or taken. It sounds like the books are there. It's just wiped of information. Magically erased, he says. So Tick begins to torture Ismani into giving them the name. Drinking her waters, which plays kind of like a joke, but really... I was going to say, is it bad that it was funny to me? <laughs> it's, it's Tick, right? This is how he is. I mean, this is horribly dark. And Fen even says that. She wants to put a stop to it, but she suddenly interrupts when she remembers the lyrics from a children's game that talk about the king. Thirsty Roderick, 13th of his line, always liked to have a good time. time. Oh my God, you're right. About what? A nursery rhyme. I've been trying to remember it all day. We used to sing it while playing bear skip. It's a children's game, sort of like Pelorian hopscotch. Involving bears? Ideally skipping them. He hides his drink from his many daughters. Built a cistern to hoard the waters. Underneath the castle fair. If you jump, you'll skip the bear! Translation, he built a large water circulation reservoir under the castle. This could be causing all the problems, and Fen thinks she knows how to get to it. So this is magic water, an abundance of magic, which is throwing the balance out of whack. Yeah, well, it's like the wellspring, but he's dammed up a whole shit ton of it underneath the castle somewhere. And it sounds like something's going wrong with that now. The waters are moving. He's starting to siphon it to wherever he needs it. What's he going to do with it? How does Everett become a god from this? I don't know. We saw that this imbues you with a ton of magical power when the beast was draining the wellspring in order to be the beast. True. It's sort of a storyline we've gotten before now. He wasn't godlike, and he had to keep taking in the water in order to maintain that. But he could almost kill a god. Right. Actually, he pretty much had Ember scared. Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe that's how. But that's not lasting. Your your power is contingent upon that. Whereas the gods, they have their own power. They can turn water on and off at will. It's Mm. sort of a different thing. You don't have that. Yeah ongoing energy i wonder maybe he had intentions of using the binder maybe or maybe he thinks this is another way to make a stone instead of killing a god if you get enough of this power maybe it's an alternate way of creating one well we will learn about it but we do know he's going to be the water champ well finally in a hallway fen points out the floor in this area has the pattern of a skip board the children's game that the lines describe so they order josh to jump around and skip the bear get to the end when he does, to his own surprise, a door opens on a staircase leading somewhere unknown. Okay, before we get to the door, I really enjoyed this scene because even now when I play a game that I used to play as a child, there is a part of me that becomes a kid again. And they are definitely becoming the kids that they used to be. They're like, no, 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 you can't do it that way. But if this crazy 13th king had this whole plan, went through these great lengths to get this... Would he have the answer be in a well-known Florian children's rhyme with just a skip board that you have to get across to open the door? Doesn't that seem unlikely? They know it well enough from their own childhood they can recall it off the top of their head. 
I feel like there's going to be more challenges. For sure. But how bad do you want to play that game right now? (laughs) If it was any... If this show was anything like Fantastic Beasts, we'd be able to get the hard-covered book in a month or so, and it would have the full game and how to play it. It would be cool if it was more like the Welters tournament that we got in Breakbills in season one, where there's all those squares and they have to do different kinds of magic. Well, I'm saying make a book with all that shit. To unlock it. Well, we could theorize about this forever we'll talk a little more about it but that does wrap up our plot for this episode and will take us to our rating each week we give a rating on a scale of one to ten rations just like magic rations more is better less is worse jason what do you give episode 11 well i find it curious that imdb has gone down for this episode Mm -hmm. they were higher on the ones we didn't like as much it is a little strange because i'm gonna go up on this one i really enjoyed all of the storylines I love the way they placed it together. Nothing felt like it wasn't supposed to be in this episode. It all felt natural. The jokes were on point. The beats were perfect. I'm going to go just under last episode and go 8.9 rations because the Margot story was just so badass. I had to, I can't go above that. And now I feel bad for only giving nine for last episode because I feel like this should be even higher. Well, I'm going to have to agree with you and give it an 8.9. I don't want to go quite as high as the first episode of Flock of Lost Birds. I gave a 9 and the second a 9 as well. But it's getting close to that territory because I am getting some of those answers I was looking for and things being drawn back together towards a conclusion. And let's move over to our digital water cooler where we ask our clatchers via Twitter at CKC Podcast, who is your MVM? And let us know your thoughts, hopes, and dreams. This week, we did it in groups because there was too many to single out. Alice and Quentin, Penny and Julia, Zelda and Katie, and then The Binder. And they really were all paired up in these quests, in those groupings together, what they were doing. You know, the last that we could have put was in Fillory for Josh and Fenn, but it is probably going to become something bigger. It wasn't as much this episode. Here, coming in fourth place with 13% was Zelda and Katie. Now, they did move the story forward a bit by finding that book and confirming that that's whatever it is up to. Explained a lot for us. But we had kind of suspected he was bad news bears and they get themselves trapped in there. It's really not looking good for them by the end of the episode. I'm concerned. (laughs) I'm concerned as well. One of the things I liked about their storyline is it got Dean Fogg involved. And whenever he's involved, I'm happy. Coming in at third place with 18% is Penny and Julia. Well, this is the bridge into next episode. We had Julia being taken by the monster. They figured out the binder. They figured out the binder. Big deal. They made out. (laughs) That's a big deal. Reunited with Hyman. And Penny was the one that was able to bring Alice and Quentin to break Bill South. So nonchalant how he's like the traveling (laughs) man now. He just has to do all his transport. That reminds me. And we figured this would happen. And I really don't mind it. And we discussed why last episode. We didn't find out how Margot got back to Earth. I'm so happy, though, that we didn't waste any time with that. Coming in second place on our poll with 19% was Alice and Quentin. Really fun storyline. Going back into the past, the unique way they did it. Working on some of their relationship character things, but also at the same time, getting that big piece of the puzzle we needed, the way to cast the incorporate bond. So that once they do trap the essence inside of that jar, they can keep it there. And also reminded us of the love that they used to have, which I think we needed some reminding as well. I'd like to touch upon the fact, and we said this a lot last season, we always talk about how they are the best when they're working as a group. 
Now, they're definitely the best when they're physically together as a group, but even in these regards, when they're putting these pieces together collectively, even though separately, but they're working together. To form so, a whole answer eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So Margot has sorrow and sorrow. Hmm. Alice and Quentin are going to find out how to trap them. Julia and Penny uncovering the binder, yeah. the, the big piece of that. Alice getting the binder. So it's all coming together as a group. And speaking of the binder, first place with 50%, the binder. The show stealer. Matt Frewer kicked ass. He explained the question we've been asking all season long, although we still don't know if they are Greek gods or anything like that. The ones that we're trying to figure out. Did he ever say their names? The twins? Yeah. No, and it's sort of this unknown creation slash mistake of the gods. So there's definitely still more to be learned about the origin that I think we will get once the brother and sister are back together. I mean, presumably that kind of has to happen next episode, right? So it seems like our Clatchers as a whole went for the binder. What do you go for? Oh, absolutely. The binder. Same here. It's a talking book. Yeah. Man, you, for me, you kind of don't even have to go any further than that. But like you said, the acting was incredible. The story was told in a way that was very interesting. It's what I've been discussing all season long, answering enough questions to feel satisfied while still leaving a lot open. This is what I was hoping for a little bit more of. So I was happy to get that here. So let's see what our Clatchers had to say about this. The Honorable said I could have really used that librarian speed reading technique in grad school. The binder got my vote. Absolutely. Oh, and Mayakovsky for honorable mention. I just love a highly intelligent, cantankerous, drunk. Ooh, wait. Is that one of our bonus words? Cantankerous? Yeah. No, but maybe it should it be. It should be, yes. <laughs> Bert says, first time I've actually watched an episode twice and with closed captioning on. Talk about progressing the story, the binder. I actually really love listening to him tell his story. It's poetic and the cadence is beautiful. How awesome is that actor? Reflecting our words exactly. I think... Have it not been for Matt and the way he told the story, our complaint would be, oh my God, what a... Info dump. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Meg says, The Magicians really is the best show on TV. They prove it every week. I had to vote for The Binder because he literally pulled together all of the seemingly divergent storylines. Can't wait to hear this week's podcast. Good point. Margarita says, I love this episode and wanted to say it made me happy they finally addressed Quentin's discipline, which was such a beautiful reveal in The Magician's Land. That's the book. It's the perfect little metaphor of who Q is as a person. Rebecca says, I knew the library order was old, but didn't know they were this old. I want to be surprised at their part in everything, but it's not surprising considering what they did to control magic. So many questions answered. Yeah, I didn't realize how far back they went as well. I thought this was a newfound power that they were striving for. The kind of tip-offs were there about Zelda being so much older than she seems. We still don't even know quite how old yet, and there's people above her. Well, yeah, I thought the library had been there for a long time, but this need for power, I thought was new. Well, like we said, I think we kind of hoped that there was a faction of them that were, and maybe there still are, thinking that they're doing the right thing, striving for good. We're just seeing this side of it right now. So who knows? But yeah, Sherry says, the librarians created gods and are ultimately responsible for the current mess the magicians find themselves in. What could possibly go wrong when Zelda and Katie enter the poison room? It's not like Alice locked the forever enduring plover in there. <laughs> or is it? Oh, there it? you go. Yeah, exactly. Amir says, I love when so many questions are answered. Not to toot my own horn, but my comment was accurate from last week. 
oh yes that's right this is our clatchers are on the same brainwave as us remember you said it and then we read the comment and we were like oh shit someone oh, else oh yes about using bleed. julia yeah that's right he also says Alice and Q have his vote because he feels like there was good plot and character development and is the built up magic and fillery from Everett. So this is him also thinking that he could be the 13th, it, like you said. Oh, right, right. Yeah. But you got me thinking, no, but he's taking advantage of the knowledge. Yeah, being I could there, see though. that going either way, to be yeah. honest with you. I mean, he's been around. You just said how long they've been around and they can look young forever. So mm -hmm. it could be him. Hmm. Amir, if you're right again, you can toot your horn next week, too. Please. <laughs> Anon Peace says, honorable mention to Hyman. I'm sure my roommates wondered why I was excitedly shouting, it's the pervert ghost of break bills. Uh <laughs> so glad they found a way to bring him back. And so true to form indeed. Shauna says, I just really miss Elliot. We do, yeah. too. But it's going to be so much sweeter when we do see him again. Yeah, and Sherry's saying she saw some disappointed tweets about muddying the waters of the Quentin Elliott possibility there oh, for a relationship yeah. by Alice and Q getting back together. But she says at the end of the magician's books. And then she says something about the books, but we will leave that because we yeah, don't want to well, spoil it for and, anybody. I mean, I think regardless of what happens in the future, Quentin and Alice need to get some closure. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's not going to mean them getting back together, but there needs to be a resolve one way or the other. Elliot Todd says, now we know why there were no gold dust floating around when the three gods died. The god energy is in the stone all along. Did the binder cast the incorporate spell to bind the stones? If so, why do they still need Mayakovsky? Oh, they need him to bind the jars that they're going to trap. Right. So, you know, when Margot is out in the desert and they're taking out the possessed people with the ice axes, then they pull that energy and the life force that was possessing them into jars and right. bottle it. But they're not as strong as a god. They're nowhere near this yeah. monster level strength. So they'd be putting it in a jar and it would just escape right away anyway. Yeah. He also asked who jailed the monster and what did he eat in the castle? The gods commissioned to have the monster jailed. Right. That's where we were discussing about Calypso and Prometheus talking that they had this castle at the end of the world for all of their problems that they could find a place for it. Yeah. And I guess somehow they created these twins that weren't meant to be who actually put them in there. I have no idea. But yeah, there's there's still some confusion. We have Ms. Fur asking, saying that the episode felt a little incomplete because the binder just breezed through the gods and twin explanation with more of a huh instead <laughs> of an aha moment in regards to the library involvement. There's it, still a lot hanging out there. There is a lot. And it was an info dump for sure, but it was delivered so well that it wasn't as painful. And it does tie in with everything we know so far. It's just one of those things where we still don't really know what's going on with them and thus what that's going to mean for our characters. But she thinks Katie wins for her librarian look alone. Hmm. But again, is that foreshadowing? Oh. If she winds up... No, she was just trying to blend. Well, no, I understand. But from a meta standpoint... I don't see. I'm not willing. I think I'm not willing to jump on that because I'm just. You don't. We were just you talking don't want about. Her she was, to. <laughs> well, we were just like, well, she's going to be the leader of the hedge witches. Now we're going to be seeing. But I oh, did, she's going to be a I librarian. I didn't really want that. I wasn't excited about that plot line. And okay. she has missed Penny Forty so much. It's just like this would also be a way to be there with him. Oh, in the underworld. You know. I see what you're saying. Well. Which feels like, you know, it sucks that she has to die if that would happen. But isn't that. 
Yeah, you know what? You got me thinking, who's going to get them out? What if the monster and his sister gets them out of the poison room to help them take out Everett? That could very well be. But again, that's me hoping. Well, we were saying, you know, they could potentially help with that situation, depending on what we get now that they're back together. Let's do a whole podcast on what ifs. Yeah, Elliot Todd is talking about the thing you brought up, a minor detail. How did Margot get back to Earth? She must have used a door somewhere not in Fillory since she was banished. I imagine there's one in Loria since King Idris' late wife was from Cincinnati and Prince S went to school on Earth. Uh, wow, nice that detail. That would be funny. Shauna says, I think we're meant to assume Lord Fresh sent her back. I believe he's a questing creature, so he would have that ability. Yeah, now, if that happened, I'm pissed. Because I did want to see that return to Lord Fresh, who said to come back once she had that. I thought for sure that'd be a perfect moment to make that happen quickly. Yeah, and to parallel with that, Lord Fresh is a water creature. So wouldn't he warn about the water as well? And fresh water, which is what we're talking about. Unconfessed. Hmm, that's a good question, Jay. (laughs) <laughs> Do you believe that Marco left the lizard in Lord Fresh's care? Do you think the lizard works for only current High King or once it met Margo, it won't work for Fen? <laughs> yeah, I want to believe that he's like Margo allegiance all the way. This is part of her birthright, yeah. for crying out loud. Yeah. Elliot Todd made a good point saying that it was almost at the end of Everett's book where Zelda read he became a god, which means he's going to die soon. Oh, didn't think about that. Hmm. Huh, so maybe they do defeat him the siblings or once you become a god there's no more books oh yeah okay that could make sense too todd says i'm tempted to give it to quentin because this is the most proactive he's been all season but the binder certainly filled in a lot of details let's hope the awkwardness quentin had to go through pays off in the end Uh, a lot more hoping that it's going to be quentin and elliot rather than alice and quentin i mean all three as much as that sounds good i think i'm alone on my wanting some redemption for alice here (laughs) i gotta go on a campaign brian s wrote to us about neftis saying that we should look into that but brian we spoke about him last episode he's not her he's not listening to my character reviews (laughs) we talked about in the osiris isis story uh what if it was horus and neftis as opposed to the traditional twins that we know. So, Brian, try harder. <laughs> We've known Brian for a while, so we're picking on him. No, we got a lot of write-ins, too. Jennifer was theorizing about that as well before this episode and just talking about what we had said, that there is stories about similar characters throughout the mythology, so they sort of have parallels in other places. For instance, something that we didn't talk about The animals that Olympian gods transformed themselves into ran to Egypt to hide and were in fact the god-animal hybrids that most Egyptian gods were portrayed as. That's why we see the Egyptian gods looking like animals. This is how the story went, that it was the Olympian Greek gods in hiding for a while. And if you look at the myths involving both gods as opposed to just one, some of the things start to make a little more sense. For instance, a question we had fairly early on this season was how could the Elliot monster and Bacchus have the same parents? While this doesn't make sense if we're only looking from a Greco-Roman perspective, Bacchus and Dionysus were listed by Herodotus as being the same entity as Osiris, Set's brother. And we were also talking about how Set had a parallel with Typhon. So if you look across all of that, maybe it can start to make a little more sense to us. We also got a couple more write-ins. Eric said he really enjoyed this episode, and his rating is a 9.8 rations. Would have been a 9.5, but a full extra .3 for Max Frewer playing the binder. That's what's up. 
He says, I was a teenager in the 80s, and he was unforgettable to me as MTV's Max Headroom. He's also been in a large number of roles. His sci-fi ones are some of his faves. He played a time traveler once on Star Trek, and we talked about that. Just like, go look him up on IMDb. You're never going to believe how many things this guy's been in. He must have been expensive. He also says, P.S., a lot of the scenes for the show are filmed around Vancouver. I get a kick out of seeing places I frequent regularly depicted on the show. He's from Vancouver. That must be mind-bending. That's cool, right? Right? Like, oh, I was just there. You know? It's like Mr. Robot. We recognize places filmed in New York City. Also, really awesome. Thank you so much to Jonathan, who sent us this saying, I found this on Sarah Gamble's timeline. She posted something saying, I think I stumbled into the magician season five title screen. And she has an image posted of this blank wall that looks just like the magician's wall. Yeah. From the opening credits we've been talking about. And the shadows of the trees looks like the shadows that they... I think part of this is actually vines, if you look at the picture up close, growing on the building. Nice. With just a white door in the middle. So awesome. You guys have to take a look at the picture. Yeah, it was actually uh, a watcher of the magicians that tweeted it and Sarah Gamble retweeted it. So it was pretty cool. That's cool. We also got a voicemail from one of our Clatchers. And if you guys want to join in on the voice calls, these are always so much fun. You can always call in ckc.6606. That's 252-368-6606. Let us know your thoughts by hearing your words. Hi, this is Noah from West Virginia. Love your guys' podcast, new listener, just over in. I just wanted to talk about how this season was awesome with how they kept, were like, yeah, guys, focus on the binder. Focus on Julia. Like, guys, get that figured out. Yes, there's all this other stuff going on over there, but, like, focus on this. And we're all just buying into it where we're like, well, no, that's not important. It kind of feels like that'll be a next season thing. And then they tie it all together with this binder who just ends up, oh my God, I couldn't. Anyway, love you guys. Thank you. Bye. Did he say his name was Mellow? Is this another Mellow? I don't know. It's hard sometimes with the... The quality of the voicemail. I I think that's what he said. So now we've got two Mellow listeners. From West Virginia. Thank you for calling in. Well, that's what the magicians does. They make you think something's really important, but then give you a whole bunch of other storylines where you're confused, like, what's the most important one? What's going on? Throw you off the all, scent. Yeah, and then they all combine together in <laughs> the end. They bind. They bind. <laughs> Boom. So, uh, yeah, for sure. That's why we love this show. And thank you for calling in. He has the same accent that your I Did you not think he was Justin has. for half yeah. a second? Yeah. <laughs> Is he from West Virginia? North Carolina. Okay, so... To us, it's similar. Close. Probably He's probably saying, we don't even Different talk like you assholes. <laughs> well, it's like people that tell me I have a Jersey accent. I'm like, what the hell is a yeah. Jersey accent? I don't understand. So again, if you want to call in and be a part of this conversation, 252-368-6606. And before we go into the spoilers, this podcast might be going a little long. It was such a good episode. We had to do it. We were really excited to see this return to form. And first, I'm going to give you the character review broken into two parts on Naiads and Twins in Mythology. For sure, the Naiads is no spoiler if you'd like to hang around for that. Some fun information. I know that we didn't get to see a lot of Ismani this episode, but we have been talking about creatures and nature spirits. We brought up that idea last time of what could possibly be afoot with that. So I thought it was interesting timing to bring her into the story. It's important to know, we brushed upon this, that a naiad is part of a larger group that are called nymphs, 
which were minor nature gods generally associated with the environment they took care of. So you had the Ori, which were wind spirits, the Hesperides, which were in charge of sunsets, the Nereids, which were in the seas, so that's salt water, and the Naiads were fresh water, and then the Dryads for trees and forests. And their names would change depending on what domain they were taken care of. But they were really inextricably linked to that location. I think we spoke about that. So if a naiad was in charge of this pond, that's where their soul would live. And it would be like this where, you know, that water, that's a piece of me. This is my domain. So speaking of naiads, they're described as seductive water spirits that you'll need to appease in order to cross certain rivers. But watch out. They bore quickly. And what they don't have a use for, they drown. So that's what you were talking about. There can be a darker side sometimes. In ancient Greek mythology, naiads were responsible only for fresh bodies of water. We're talking fountains, wells, springs, and streams. So unlike this book quote, they were distinct from river gods, as well as the very ancient spirits that inhabited the still waters of marshes, ponds, and lagoons. Then you had oceanids associated with salt water and nereids that were specific to the Mediterranean. But the naiads in the books had gills on their neck, webbed fingers like ducks, and pointed teeth like sharks. A little scary. She told Quentin that his group should not be in the war happening in Fillory and gave him a blowing horn that turned out to summon the beast. Ugh. So that was way back when and you could see uh, maybe not so helpful. Probably accurate that we depicted as scary here in this episode. And next, I did a lot of looking up about twins in mythology. There have been a ton of stories. I won't run through them all because it would take forever. Things that we have kind of touched upon here before, but seems to be becoming ever more important with the knowledge we get in this information. They have appeared in mythologies of many cultures, and they often have their own folkloric explanations for how twins were conceived, how they came to be. In Greek mythology, some twins were conceived when a woman slept with both a mortal and a god on the same day. There's a lot of stories about that. Very interesting, like Alcamini, for example. One of her offspring, Heracles, or Hercules as you know him, had godlike qualities such as immense strength and stamina, while his twin brother Iphicles was just an ordinary mortal because his god was the mortal father and Hercules had the godly father. It's funny how they found these stories to explain how, how things happened. In some stories, they're seen as ominous, the twins, and in others, they're seen as auspicious. They can reflect a dualistic nature, so two halves of the same whole. In Greek mythology, you have twins Apollo and Artemis, who represented the sun and the moon. Yes, I know. They represented many other things. Apollo is like the god of everything. <laughs> music, medicine, a ton of other stuff. And they weren't even really initially responsible for the sun and the moon. I mean, the sun god was Helios for a very long time, but let's just forget about that for a minute. In Egyptian mythology, Geb is the earth and Nut is the sky. We talked about that last time because their children were also twins, Osiris and Isis. Boom. Keeps coming back to them, doesn't it? And in these cases, they share special powers and a deeper bond than ordinary siblings, kind of like we hear about the binder telling us. In Greek mythology, Castor and Pollux shared a bond so strong that when Castor died, Pollux gave up his immortality to be with his brother. But sometimes, twins represented opposites, such as the shadow self or rivals, even good and evil. In several northeastern Native American tribes, we have this storyline. For example, Glooskap, I don't know how to say that, the creator god and cultural hero had to defeat Malsum, his evil twin, 
who was the ruler of demons. And many other cultures have rival twin heroes that often follow this structure of split moral forces, good and evil. I bring all this up to say, what are we going to see with these twins? Yeah. Are they two halves of the same whole once they become themselves again? Are they good versus evil? The yin and yang. Hmm. I mean, we saw a little bit of that with Ember and Umber, and there's foreshadowing from the books about the dualistic nature of those gods. How much more heightened would that be with twins? I wonder, and only time will tell. Well, thank you for that. I love this part. It's one of my favorite parts of the podcast. (laughs) It's interesting to think about all this stuff, and even if it doesn't wind up tying in, it's fun to learn about. Absolutely. Right? I, for one, just love hearing these ancient stories about mythology. I was thinking about pulling those sections out and making it like a secondary podcast that we released right after, but I thought about it too late. <laughs> so maybe, maybe next, next year. Yeah. Before we go into the spoiler section, I wanted to thank all the Clatchers. It's been amazing. The amount of emails, Facebook, Twitter messages, the retweets that we're getting with when we tweet about the poll or when we tweet about the episode, the Arjun response was amazing. I love the comments about MVM that we're constantly getting in because it really contributes to the conversation. And in fact, there's so much that I know we are not responding to all of it. I truly apologize for that. It is just so much. We're honestly like a little bogged down, but we have read everything. And if we know we're going to bring the comment up on the podcast, then this is generally the way we respond to it. Which I think is better than 100 characters or whatever it is now. Please don't think any of that means we're ignoring it. We take it all in and it informs how we continue with this podcast. We are incredibly grateful for that. And I'm going to state this in the last episode of the season, but I want to state it here too. We ask that you stick with us. With our kind of podcast, we work really hard on a season and we build a following. And then we go to the next show and we lose half the crowd because they're not watching that show. Unfortunately, and that's part of the nature. But don't forget, if you're not watching the show, totally understand. But don't forget about us. Well, like we said, we do try to do something a little bit different here at CKC. It is a virtual water cooler. That isn't just something we say. We love the support of the community and the conversations we have. You all have such insightful, intelligent things to say. I would love to hear what you have to say, for example, about Game of Thrones. If you are a watcher of that show and interested that's coming up really soon in fact it's going to overlap with the magicians and we'd love to talk to you over there and this weekend we will be coming out with our game of thrones prepper so stay tuned for that remind you of everything that happened where we left off in season seven and get you ready for this season eight now if you're not watching game of thrones or if after game of thrones well christina and i are going to take a break It's been 30 weeks nonstop, so we'll take a little bit of break and remember why we love each other (laughs) without a microphone in front of our faces, but we will always be doing Patreon, and that's the only way we actually make any money back to put into the podcast. So if you really like what we're doing and you want to lend a hand, join Patreon. Join the $3 tier, which is less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks. It really is just enough to keep the doors open and the lights on and keep the podcast going. We would love for that to keep growing so that we could keep doing more content. And it is all thanks to you guys. So if you've been interested, it's something you're thinking about, give it a try. See how you like it. Know that the $3 that won't affect you much is actually going to help Christine and myself tremendously. And it's what keeps us going, what keeps us working hard to continue doing these podcasts. If it all fails... We'll probably stop this. The free casts. The free casts and uh, just every so often do a random cast because we do love what we're doing. But it does get, 
you know, taxing when it's every week. So basically what I'm saying is it's because of you we still continue to do this. And now I think we're going too long. So let's go to the spoiler section. We love you guys. If you are afraid of that, we will see you next time when we review episode 12, second to last. If you are still here, we know that episode 12 is called The Secret Sea. And the short, short synopsis is Quentin yells at a plant. Margot stares at a fish. If you recall, we had discussed a little while back in a previous spoiler section that The Secret Sea is the fourth book in the Fillory and Further series written by Christopher Plover. It followed the adventures of Jane and Rupert Chatwin as they sought the remnants of the great shark army to help them take Fillory back from the Watcher Woman. Now, of course, the Chatwins and the Watcher Woman and all of that is not a thing that's playing in right now, but we are talking about waters and seas and who knows, we could encounter a great shark army, I suppose. The big news, though, in the preview that we saw, the monster brings Julia to his sister. Now, before you go on to the next part, I watched the extended preview, and it kept blacking out, so I actually didn't get to see the whole minute of the extended preview. It would black out, and I'm not saying it was on purpose. I think they messed up the video. Mm. But she starts calling on Our Lady Underground. Oh, wow. But I assume she doesn't come because... Julia is possessed. That's the big whopper the preview shows us. We kind of figured it was coming, but really, really scary. She says, are you scared of me, little brother? Ooh, see, there you go. So the first scene we see is them going down that hallway in the library. And that's what makes me wonder, where are they going to? Are they going to the poison room? Mm. And we see that Dean Fogg got off his drunk ass (laughs) and he's there to help. And it looks like it's not going to be much help, but... As per usual. Let's see him in action, though. I love that. (laughs) And then I think what they showed, it was a big cut, but I think later on in the episode, that's when she starts saying, are you scared of me, little brother? I think. Hmm. Or maybe it's in the beginning and he's scared when she's all Well, he just came back at the end of this episode saying his sister's dying and grabbing Julia. That Mm -hmm. feels like an imminent thing that we do need to go back to. Now, I don't know if she'll possess her right away, but if she's dying... No, that'll be definitely in the beginning. I mean, when she finally says, are you scared of me, little brother? Because in the scene with them walking down, they're definitely hand in hand working together. Right. And then I'm wondering if she's about to take it too far, maybe. And Monster Elliot's like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. These guys are actually good or something like that. Or if it's just that it is this dualistic nature and she is darker and more powerful. I mean, they did say she was the older sibling and was more powerful than him. Exactly. So it could just be chalked up to that. But a lot of good fodder. For sure. And now let's start our fan fiction. Well, that wraps up this episode. I think it's a little bit longer. I can't tell until I finish editing it. But we did have a good time. And this was another great episode for the magicians. I'm happy and sad because it's coming to an end for yet another season. Remember, if you haven't heard the Arjun interview, check it out and let Arjun know what you felt about the podcast, if it's positive, so that he'll come on again. Don't forget to go to our podcast, click on our Amazon link. If you're doing your Amazon shopping, it helps us out and doesn't cost you any more money. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.